Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Or seeing the trend that goes sometimes, and it does that in different ways. Your choice about this or you. Or what does. Or what does your choice of car say about you or choice of um, clothing say about you? And actually, scientists try to figure out whether there's any truth to, the, to this kind of trend. So this uh, clinical psychologist uh, conducted a survey of a 1,000 people trying to see what your choice about coffee suggests about your personality and what you order when you go to the coffee shop. So there are many articles online that kind of try to present people who order um, black coffee as psychopath, and those who love sugary drinks as as sweet as their drink of choice. But this survey shows different results. Basically, nothing definitive, but some interesting trends. So those who order black coffee tend to be old school. They want to keep things simple. Those who order lattes, cappuccinos, tend to be people pleasers. Iced coffee, bold and spontaneous, but also reckless, and often making unhealthy decisions. Decaf, or if you add milk alternatives like soy milk, almond milk, um, or other specific orders, they tend to be more controlling, more obsessive, and more perfectionist. Those who buy cooperative grown coffees, like specialty coffees, fair trade, ethically grown, things like that, they're more likely to engage in virtue signaling, in feigning the appearance of having virtues. Those who can afford such coffees, however, uh, are less willing to pay the price for these uh, more expensive coffees. Instant coffee, and this is the last one, instant coffee drinkers tend to be more laid back, but they also tend to be poor planners and procrastinators. So if I, I, I hope I offended everyone equally, and if I forgot to offend you, I apologize, and I, maybe you can be offended for being excluded from uh, this list. There was another study done a few years after that, and it involves around 1,000, around 950 people, and examined whether taste preferences in coffee says anything about personality, and they concluded that there's nothing conclusive, there's barely any correlation, and you're more likely to get accurate predictions about your personality um, looking into the horoscope section of the newspaper. So if it's... Um, if it's not your decision 
about coffee that says something about your personality, about who you are, uh, then what does? And the risk here is also that things can go in the opposite direction. I want to appear to be a certain type of personality, so I go into the store ordering that kind of coffee, hoping that somehow this translates into me being more bold or more assertive. But things don't work out this way. It, it's it, this way of working things out is almost backwards, almost trying to force the result or uh, force the, the question by posing certain answers. The way we make decisions, the way we act, the way we behave says a lot about who we are. And today, when our Lord is saying, if you have seen me, I've seen the Father, the question is, well, what does that mean? Sometimes you say, for um, a, a child, for example, can say, you know what, I stand here for my parents. I, I speak for my parents. Or a lawyer can say, I speak for my clients. Or a spouse can say, I speak for my husband or I speak for my wife. Is that what our Lord is saying here? Is that, you know, I'm, I'm here, I stand for the Father. I'm here speaking on his behalf. I'm speaking on his authority. I stand here for him. If you see me, you've seen him. I think he's saying something deeper, something that I say every week. And I'm going to continue to say. The way we make decisions doesn't just reflect our personality, our character, but also reflects our understanding of how life works. So some people make decisions based on consequences. So they look at the decision before them and they, and they want to maximize the good. So they pick the answer that has the maximum potential for good. So for example, I have a limited amount of resources, a limited amount of time, a limited amount of money, and I want to help the poor and needy. So where do I go to help the poor and needy? Not in my own backyard, but perhaps I go to Africa, right? Not that, you know, people in other places aren't, God isn't calling servants to go and serve, but that's the kind of thinking in this particular instance, looking at consequences. There's another way of looking at decision-making where it's in reference to a set of rules. Um, rules that are laid, a standard that is presented by someone. Christ came and said, we should do this, so that's why we should do it. And that's the only reason we should do it, because Christ said that we should do it. Adultery is bad because Christ said it's bad, and therefore we should not commit adultery. Murder is bad because Christ said it's bad. And he came to establish this standard that we always point to and say, this is the standard we should follow. But what's happening here is something deeper. When he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And notice that it's always Thomas getting into trouble. Always Thomas asking the questions. But today, it was Philip who got in trouble and said, Philip, how can you say this? But notice the difference between the response of our Lord to Philip and the response to Thomas a few weeks ago. He didn't say, Thomas, how can you ask? How dare you ask a question like this? There's a difference between doubt and a misunderstanding. And the two responses show that there is a difference there. So back to decision-making. Did our Lord come and say, I'm here, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me, I'll show you the way. He said, I am the way. And the reason he says, I am the way, that it's not just simply about making the decision that's going to maximize the benefit for me and for the greater good, for the, for the community, 
for the family, for whoever I care about. And it's not also because he said, do this, so we do this for the sake of just obedience. And because he said to do it, so we got to do it. Because when we look at the Gospels and what our Lord taught us, we see that there is a very short list of do's and don'ts that he actually talks about. Well, what he talks about, like in, when we look in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, there's a very short list of do's and don'ts. And oftentimes we find ourselves in situations where what we're faced with hasn't been discussed. So what do we do? How do we extrapolate? How do we make sure that what we're doing isn't something going against what God wants us to do? And then we find ourselves in ethical dilemmas. Should I do this? Should I do that? What's the right thing to do? What does God want me to do? And we get confronted with the phrase, what would Jesus do? So if Jesus was in your situation, if he was in your position, what would he do? And we think that it's about that moment and it's about that decision. And it's only about making the right decision. If we figure out what the right decision, what it could be, then we're good. If we can only tap into God's mind and figure out what the right decision is. But as it turns out, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. It's not just about, God, which way do I choose? Do I choose left? Do I choose right? Do I choose to travel? Do I choose to stay? What do I choose to do? It turns out that the dilemmas we find ourselves in isn't just something external. The dilemmas we find ourselves in is really internal. The dilemma we find ourselves is, is between what we confess our faith to be and the impulses of the flesh, the passions. The passions are trying to pull us in all sorts of different directions, but our faith, our confession of our faith, is telling us different. It's telling us that God is the only source of fulfillment. It's not the fulfillment of the flesh. It's not the fulfillment of the bank account. It's not the fulfillment of anything else but God. And how do we reach this fulfillment? It's, in fact, the opposite of what we think is the reasonable assumption. The opposite is not to get more, but to give up more. To give up so much more that we become empty. It's an emptying. And the whole, the whole endeavor of asceticism is how to empty ourselves and return ourselves towards God, to turn back, to practice a metonia. And that's what it means to make a good decision. Have I confused everyone yet? And have I offended everyone yet? Did I, not, did I leave anyone unoffended and unconfused? How does God want us to behave? Is there an easy answer to this? Is there a verse, is there a chapter that I can look to and say, God, I'm in this position, I'm in this situation. What should I do? The young man came to, the, to Christ and asked him, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that I need to do? Just point me to a list of things that if I follow, I inherit eternal life and I'm good, I'm golden. And what was his answer? God is love. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that have to do with inheriting the eternal life? What does that have to do about righteous living? What does that have to do about being good? God is love is great and I love is great, but how is it that I can make good decisions and live righteously? And therefore, because I, make good, I am living well and living righteously, then therefore I, etern, I inherit eternal life. How does the two things work together? 
and with such a limited number of guidelines, we're often faced with questions like, well, this could be right, but that also could be right. Which one do I do? God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And we tend to go to verses in the Bible that tend to support decisions that we've already made. We just want kind of like a support to say that this is the right decision. But as it turns out, it's not just about the decision, it's about something deeper. And that deeper thing is about the way we're created, created in the image of God. We have a natural disposition to be good. And all we need to do is lean into that position. That's all. Lean into that disposition. We have a disposition. You hear about disposition. Like someone has a disposition, genetic predisposition towards a certain disease or a genetic predisposition towards a certain kind of behavior and addiction, for example. And if they behave in a certain way, it triggers that predisposition and it makes it dominant. So what we're saying here is that we have a natural predisposition to be good and we need only to lean into that. We're all made in the image of God and his likeness is granted to us. His likeness is granted to us by grace. What he is by nature, he's giving us by grace. So when he says, whoever has seen the Father has seen me, he's not just saying, you do the right thing, you make the right decision, and therefore you're in good standing with the Father. And when the books are open, we look at the things, you've done 10 bad things, eight, eight uh, good things, therefore you're not in a good position. Or if you've done 10 good things and five bad things, you're in a good position, you're okay. It's about more than that. You know, you hear something about the lives of the saints. When we go and read the lives of the saints, and we often, when we read the lives of the saints, in some circles, sometimes we tend to focus a little bit too much, put a little bit too much emphasis on miracles, whereas the emphasis really needs to go on the lives of the saints. And one of the saints said this. He said that it shouldn't be called the lives of the saints, but the life of the saints. Because the life of the saints is the life of Christ. The life of the saints is their union with Christ. And that's why he said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I'm not just coming here to tell you how to live righteously. I am righteousness. I'm not just here coming to show you the good. I am goodness. There's no goodness apart from me. When we read the gospel this morning of Matins, he who abides in me. The whole idea of abiding isn't just about pointing. The whole idea of abiding is about unity and union. All men are made in God's image, but to be in his likeness is granted only to those who through great love have brought their own freedom into subjection to God. For only when we do not belong to ourselves do we become like him who through his love has reconciled us to himself. Who through his love, not through anything else, through his love, has reconciled us to himself. This is from the Philokalia, from the first volume. So that also puts us in a dilemma. When we surrender ourselves to God, what is it that we're supposed to do with our free will and responsibility? Do we renounce our freedom 
and reject our responsibility and run away from it? Of course not. And the reason we don't do this is the same reason, in the first place, we are the ones who have to go willingly to the cross to give our freedom, to surrender it to God. It's because we are co-workers, fellow workers with God. And what ends up happening is, what ends up happening is when we surrender our will to God through this process of ascesis and emptying of ourselves and practicing mitania, we go to the foot of the cross, we surrender our, our will to Him. What ends up is that we don't become slaves, but become fellow workers, co-workers, a life of synergy with God. And that's why salvation in the Orthodox Church is not a past event, it's a process. We're continually being saved. Our job is not done. We're continually working with God, working on our salvation with fear and trembling. When we look at things, we look at markers out in the world, try to measure ourselves and see, am I good by this standard or by that standard? I look at, you know, Surveys in magazines, am I a good husband, am I a good father, am I, am I a good wife, am I a good mother, uh, you know, uh, am I achieving enough, if I'm trying hard enough, and I, and I try to measure myself by all of these standards, and then I, I, I come to the realization that all of these standards are a reflection of my own ego. I want to see myself as a good guy, so I go and seek out things that prove to me that I am good. I am actually not just good, I'm great. And then I turn to the cross and Christ is, is there. And he's telling me, come, come to me. It's not about, you know, walking these certain footsteps or making these types of decisions or living this certain type of way. Without Christ, the ancient Greeks knew this. The ancient Greeks, as smart as they were, they hit a dead end. Their philosophy got them somewhere and could get them no further. They realized that to be good, to do good, we have to have something than just more than looking at the consequences of our actions. There has to be something bigger. We're not just living to some arbitrary random standard that we reason ourselves or rationalize ourselves into. There is something more. It's not just Christ coming to point the way to this standard. He's coming to say, I am the way through me by uniting with me. It's not just figuring out what God wants me to do or what God would do if he was in my position, in my situation. It's by unity, by being one with him. And the way I do that is by going, like I said, to the foot of the cross, surrendering my will, and becoming a fellow worker with God. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.